Well, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, I'm a familiar face for some of you. For some of you, you have, I'm not Matt Ham, so you don't know who I really am. Uh, my name is Sid Druin. I'm the pastor of community groups here at Hope. Uh, I get to care for community groups and community group leaders and community group coaches. Um, and also, I get to, on occasion, open God's word and look at it together. So that's what we're going to do this morning. Um, but before I do that and kind of drop us in the middle of a passage and, and read it to us and talk about it, um, I did just want to give you some background about where we are in the book of Exodus. First of all, we're studying the book of Exodus. We've been doing that for the last couple of weeks. Um, the book of Exodus is in the Old Testament. It's the second book of the Old Testament. And also, um, it also refers to a movement. Uh, the Exodus is a historical and spiritual movement of Israelite people from Egypt and slavery and into what is now modern Israel and Palestine and into freedom. And God leads this movement of the people from Egypt to the promised land through a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he does this through a man, a man named Moses. And so um, the question is, who is this Moses and what does this Moses and this huge story of this movement of people thousands and thousands of years ago have to do with my daily life? And that's the heartbeat of the sermon series that we're looking at at Hope for the next several weeks and we've been looking at. For the last few weeks, we've been looking at the first four chapters of the book of Exodus. And there, Moses, along with God, of course, takes center stage, whether it was his birth, his childhood, his exile, or his calling. But this week, while Moses is still very much on the scene, he kind of shifts stage left and kind of front lit up at the center, taking the, over the whole stage, our entire line of sight is God. God and his mighty miracles, the plagues, God and his plagues quickly push everyone and everything aside, including the most mighty and powerful ruler of that day, Pharaoh. But before we kind of get more into the scene and who God is and what God's up to in this scene, I did want to read the scripture and then pray. So let's look at the scripture together. It's Exodus chapter 7 and then Exodus chapter 10. And so I'm going to read two different selections from those chapters. Chapter 7 of the book of Exodus, starting in verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the brink of the Nile, or excuse me, the bank of the Nile to meet him. Taking your hand, the staff he turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the, God, I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and I shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out over your hand of the waters of Egypt and over the rivers and canals and ponds and pools of water so they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even the vessels of wood and vessels of stone. That was just for free. That was extra. Let's keep going. Chapter 10. Did that in the first service too. Okay. So ninth plague, darkness, chapter 10, verse 21. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take, them all, take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the God, the Lord, until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Friends, these are the words of God, and they're more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they're sweeter than honey, even honey straight from the honeycomb. Let's pray together. Father, um, these are hard passages, and um, they're loaded with a lot of meaning and a lot of um, feeling to them. And this day is loaded with a lot of meaning and feeling for so many of us. For some of us, it's just another Sunday. For some of us, this week has been a week that had things in it. Um, this weekend has had things in it maybe that we can't um, turn the page on. And I just pray that you would be with us wherever we are. Would you meet us by your word and through your spirit? And most of all, Jesus, would you be high and lifted up? Would you be more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts? Would you help us to see you? And as we behold you, become changed from one glory to another. Would you not let us leave this room the same people that we entered it? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So a few weekends ago, uh, I was sitting in a small airplane at a regional airport that was pretty spread out. And... It was dark, and it just landed, and, and it, the weather was sort of like the weather today. It was sort of spitting rain, and I was exhausted. I had traveled across the country um, that day. I had left Charlotte uh, during, during maybe the early afternoon, and then I flew all the way across the country, and I had arrived at nighttime in Pacific time zone, which was sort of early morning Charlotte time. And we were just sort of taxiing to our gate very slowly, and I did what everyone does in those moments. I just sort of looked sort of bleary-eyed ahead and stared off into nothing. Um, but then I also looked at a phone, but it wasn't my phone, which was a little bit weird. Not everyone does that. Uh, it was the man sitting in front of me, his iPhone that I was looking at. Uh, and I imagine this is poor form. Uh, some of you are thinking that's like listening in on an in-depth, deep conversation that's not your conversation. And that's okay. Um, but the guy was literally holding his phone up like this over his head, and he was swiping kind of casually through his pictures, and it was just right at my line of sight. And, and I just watched him kind of go through these individual portraits and go through these kind of streams of burst mode photos, mostly of his young son and, and a woman I assumed was his wife. And he was scrolling off and flipping back and forth between the photos, and he kind of would go back to a photo and pause over it and linger over it for a while. 
And it was a photo uh, or two of his son. I remember one in particular with he had greasy fleece, uh, green fleecy pajamas near a Christmas tree. Again, this is, I understand this is creepy. Um, <laughs> along with his crumpled business suit, uh, I started to kind of invent a narrative, as we all do, and we get in these moments uh, when we're traveling, uh, we're people watching, and he sort of, you know, he looked tired, he had a crumpled blue business suit, and so I mentally began to write a story about his life. You know, he's a traveling businessman, He's probably just been away for a long time. His marriage is feeling a little strained. He misses his, his, his child, his, his son, so dearly. Between business meetings, he's just thinking about him all the time. Um, and, and maybe kind of at this moment, you're kind of going, I'm not so sure about the community group's pastor hire we just made in August. Ah, <sighs> feeling comfortable. But maybe the bigger question that you're wrestling with is this. Uh, where are you going with this story, Said, What in the world does this have to do with the plagues? of Egypt. The point of the story is that we get to know a person. In my case, we think we get to know a person. <laughs> we get to know a person by the pictures that they care about deeply. Deeply enough to linger over and to share with us, hopefully intentionally. <laughs> Exodus chapter 7 and 10 are two individual portraits. The plague of the Nile turning into blood and the plague of the darkness over the land of Egypt. And God wants us to share these portraits with us. These two portraits are in a stream of burst mode photos, and that is of the 10 plagues. The plague that begins with the Nile turned to blood and then ends with the Passover of Israel's firstborn children and animals. And I think you could easily make the case that the plagues are pictures that God lingers over, that he often flips back to, and quite clearly shares in the Bible. But why? <laughs> why are these pictures among those that God shares with us, let alone returns to? Historically, we know they're instrumental to God bringing Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and we also know there's a spiritual application there, a picture for us how God spiritually brings us out of our slavery to idols and things that are not God. And this memory of God dramatically rescuing his people is fundamental to who God is. Listen to how God puts it over and over again in his own scriptures. Here's just one example. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. How do you do that with the 10 plagues? So these two plague scenes in Exodus 7 and 10 are how we get to know God. They're meant to tell us about God, who is God, what is God like? In fact, God tells the Pharaoh that the purpose of the plagues is this in Exodus 7, 17. By this plague you shall know that I am the Lord. And who God is can tell us so much about who we are. Get it? This is because we don't just get meaning and purpose from seeing God in our stories. We also get meaning and purpose from seeing ourselves in God's story. I love the way that the theologian and author A.W. Tozer puts it. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. 
And so I'd like for us this morning to grapple, to grapple with this God more fully in who he is. Because in order for us to live lives filled with meaning and purpose, with more meaning and more purpose, we have to look at what God points to over and over about who he is. Even if it's hard, and even if it's admittedly strange to us in 21st century Charlotte. I mean, these aren't exactly the kind of pictures that you would put on your Christmas card and send to everybody you know, right? So let me give you three possible takeaways for these two images of God. You can call the outline two truths and a lie. Two truths and a lie, ready? First, let's push in the lie some people make of these plagues. God is not a moral monster. So the lie is God is a moral monster because of these plagues. We're gonna push on that one a little bit. Let's look, second, we're going to look at the first truth that the plagues tell us. The Lord is the only God worth having. And then the second truth is our third point, and it's this. The Lord is the only God worth obeying. So that's the outline. It's in, behind me, up on, projected behind me, and also it's in your bulletin. So let's go ahead and look at that. We're going to start with the first point, the lie, the lie that makes God a moral monster. We're going to look at that together. So my guess is if like you're paying attention and, and you haven't just totally zoned me out at this point, which does happen in sermons from time to time, um, you're shocked. You're surprised. It's surprising that God points to these two scenes that seem straight from a horror movie, don't they? That's, this is who he is? This is what he's about? I mean, we see a flowing, mostly clear, life-giving river slowed to a thick, sloshing red liquid dotted with blood clots. Next scene, pitch black darkness, the lights are out, and it's such a thick darkness, it's felt. Exodus 10, 21, and the people can't even see each other. They won't even move. These are among God's signature picks? Really? What in the world? You and I are not alone in our shock at God using the 10 plagues to show he is the Lord. Uh, For many who grew up in the church or grew up in the church and some people who've never set foot in a church, the 10 plagues are 10 more reasons I never really want to get to know God. Listen to how one reader of scenes like Exodus 7 and Exodus 10 puts it. This reader is Richard Dawkins. This is what he put about God's character um, a couple years ago in a famous best-selling book, The God Delusion. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, his word. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, I don't know how to pronounce that, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Whew. Yikes. Yikes. He's really pulling no punches, and I would argue he's making some haymakers, some big words below the belt. But instead of kind of pushing back on this hot take, um, and really kind of engaging it point by point in a way that's way too brief, I'd like to let the rest of my sermon do that. And I would like instead to sort of shift to something else. 
I want to point out that atheists are not the only people who are troubled by the plagues. There are plenty of well-meaning Christians who are also troubled. And some of, some of us have let our anxiety run rampant about these kinds of scenes, and it's sort of sloppied our thinking. And it's made us do, make kind of oversimplifications about how God works. For instance, Christians can take modern-day natural disasters like earthquakes or diseases and interpret them as signs of God's specific judgment for various social evils. The beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, you may remember that, uh, we were all sheltering in place, and what that really meant was we were sheltering on the internet, right? And when we were sheltering on the internet, I, as a pastor, got a lot of internet articles about what was going on the internet. And I got more than one article that claimed that God is acting through this natural calamity, aka COVID-19, with all its repercussions to proclaim his judgment. God is judging the nations for their idolatry and corruption. Is not God judging the United States? Read one article. And then these internet sensations went on to point out or pinpoint a few pet sins that mostly had to do with our sexuality that, and rarely had to do with other sins like how we use money or how we use our time or how we use our words or how we use our worship. And my point is, my point is not this, okay? My point is not God doesn't care about sex. So hear me clearly, God cares about sex, okay? But I also want to say another way that's much more than that. God cares about sex and a lot of other things. And even more than that, here's my bigger point, making a direct link between a moral cause and a natural disaster effect assumes an awful lot. It assumes that God speaks to some blogger today just like he spoke to Moses face to face back in that day and time. It also assumes that you or I or anyone else has some sort of special knowledge that everyone else does not have that can pinpoint God's infinite and eternal purposes for something as intensely complicated and global as a pandemic like COVID-19 or a tsunami. And that's problematic. So, if God is not a moral monster in either of those senses, then why the bloody Nile and why the three days of darkness? Aside from highlighting God's sort of ability to take down an evil empire, I think the main reason that God calls the plagues of in Egypt as a major event in his personal story is because they tell us who God is, especially, specifically, the Lord is the only God worth having, our second main point this morning. Remember, Exodus chapter 7, verse 17, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. And so, with one motion of Moses' arm, the Lord kills all the life-giving force of the Nile. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. Exodus 7, verse 21. So, and perhaps more importantly, the Lord God shows us that he is the Lord over Egypt's pretend gods. If you look at it closely, you'll start to see that he is the Lord over Egypt's pretend deity of the Nile River, the god Hapi, Hapi, H-A-P-I, the child of Horus in Egyptian mythology. 
And likewise, in Exodus chapter 10, the Lord God shows that he's the Lord God, the Lord over Egypt's supreme pretend deity, the sun god Ra. And there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Three days that Ra, the sun god, failed to rise victorious and shed his light abroad on the nation of Egypt. And so the Lord is making this dramatic case that he is the only God worth having. He's the only true God. He's the only God who will never fail us. And he puts this case to us again roughly 1,300 years after the plagues. He says it this way, there is this man, God, this is the God made man, Jesus. And by shedding his own blood on a cross, he gave us the living water of the Holy Spirit. Life-giving water. A water that forever flows in our hearts and wells up with abundant life. And then Jesus, three days after that moment on the cross, rose from the darkness after three days in the tomb and proving once and for all that he is the light of the world so that whoever follows him will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. A light that sees the worst of us and doesn't turn his face away. Why? Because in that darkest of moments, God the Father turned his face away from Jesus. And if we're honest, all of us here, whether you call yourself a Christian or not, all of us live lives that pursue this kind of final life that we can't lose, or this light of full and final acceptance that we want so desperately. The ancient Egyptians, they gave their time and their money, they gave their emotional and mental energy to the gods of the Nile River and the sun. And they did this to get security and significance. And the question is, what do we do in 21st century Charlotte? Whether we're Christians or not, whether we're pastors on a church staff, say, or not, what is the world we're living in? What are we trying to get life and light by? What are we chasing? What are we chasing after? Is it the perfect forever home? The just right job with a proper work-life balance and great benefits? Is it the kids in the kind of school where when you say the school they go to, the people nod in approval and press their lips together as if, hmm, great, so, so glad for you. These good things can become God so quickly and easily. We can think that this kind of good life, Charlotte style, uh, that only more money can buy, these gods will give us the life of security that we can't lose. We can think that these things can give us the light of significance that we'll finally feel accepted in. But here's a question. What if it doesn't? What if we'll never feel like we have enough money? Or we'll ha never feel like we have the perfect home and feel settled? What if the right school won't give us the social capital? I uh, haven't watched the show, and so I'm in no way endorsing it one way or the other. Uh, it's a TV series called Fleischman is in Trouble and explores this growing reality or this gnawing reality, I should say, that kind of 
in all of us. How people who seem to have it all on the outside never actually feel like they have it all on the inside. And so there's an article by a journalist named Caitlin Muscatello, and she uses this show as a springboard to interview her friends and kind of ask hard, self-examining questions. One friend that she interviews lives in an affluent neighborhood, and she's really, by all uh, accounts, made it. But she looks around her at um, the others who have more than her, and she confesses this. There's this very subtle heartbreak that perhaps people made better life choices than you, and their houses are bigger, and they are happier. Another woman, Kayla, near the, is near the peak of her career, and she wonders out loud, when literally is it good enough? <laughs> when is it good enough? What is the end game? I genuinely don't know the answer. Where I live and who I live with, it is absolutely environment of nothing is ever good enough. Work becomes so important. I've felt so defined by achievement and feeling like, what is the next rung on the ladder? You're like, this is disgusting. You have more than enough, and yet it doesn't feel like that. It feels like you have to keep climbing or you're gonna fall behind, or you're gonna fall off the ladder, or you're gonna fall apart. These heart-level self-examinations begin and end with a stream of questions in this article that sounds like a monologue from one of the main characters of the show, Fleischman's in Trouble. The character's name is Libby. This is a monologue that sounds a lot like what she talks about in the show. Is all this really worth it? Am I spending these years, maybe the best years, focused on the right things? When does it get easier? How did I get here? And so we're invited to ask the same kind of deep questions this morning about our lives, whether who or what we're chasing and trying to desperately to maintain is actually worth it. What's the end game for all this achievement, these life choices, my laser focus on the next thing, the next next thing? And what about the Lord? In Exodus chapter five, verse two, Pharaoh kicks off the plagues by essentially asking the same exact question. What about the Lord? God through Moses and Aaron tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh replies casually, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And really that's the second question the plagues are answering. So it's not just, they're not just answering the Lord is, is the only God worth worshiping. Is he? The second question they're answering is, is the Lord the only God worth obeying? So many of, that's our third and final point, by the way. We're almost there. The, many of the books I read about Exodus and these, these particular plagues uh, made a repeated point, and they suggested there's this role of natural causes in the plagues. Yet the plagues are primarily a demonstration of God's supernatural power, but, the, but, the plagues, but God's supernatural power uses means. They're directed to the undoing of creation and nature. 
The plagues are a reversal intentionally of the creation account in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. They are the undoing of creation. In the first plague, the waters no longer swarm with swarms of living creatures. And in the ninth plague on the earth of Egypt is once again without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep. And while this emphasis is on primarily supernatural causes in the passages, the Lord's hand is working through Moses to do amazing things in these plagues, we need to kind of also acknowledge there's a secondary chain of cause and effect going on in these passages. This is how Tim Chester put it in his commentary on Exodus. Um, by the way, I love this word knock-on. It's so British, so we're gonna, you can highlight that for you. <laughs> There may have been a knock-on effect with earlier plagues. The, po- the Niles polluted plague one, which sends frogs into towns, plague two. The frogs die in huge numbers, which brings gnats and flies, plagues three and four. These then produce an epidemic of disease, which kills livestock, plague five, and spreads boils among humans, plague six, and on and on it goes throughout all 10 plagues. And, and so, we're well into the third point of a three-point sermon this morning, and some of you are asking a very good question, and it's fair to ask, so what? So what? Well, here it is. The plagues are meant to show us there is a moral order to the universe. And if you go against that moral order, you will typically hurt yourself and hurt others and hurt the creation. Another way of saying this is if is disobeying God's voice is not just bad, it's bad for you. And there are often consequences that will catch up with you over time. Think of it this way, God's law, his instructions in the Bible are like the grain of a wood. Think about a piece of wood that's from, fresh from the sawmill. If you rub your hand with, with the grain of the wood, then you get a feel for its texture, for its beauty and its usefulness. But if you run your hand against the grain of the wood, you get splinters. (laughs) It's the same with life. If we go with God's voice, we generally will live a useful and beautiful life. If we go against God's voice, if we harden our hearts, our world will uh, eventually fall apart and ultimately lead to death and darkness. God will give us over to the lusts of our hearts to impurity and dishonor is how Romans chapter one puts it. Or God will harden a heart that's already hardening, hardening through our choices that fix into habits that turn into character is how Exodus chapter 10 verse 27 puts it. So let me stir in two quick words, okay? First wisdom, my first word. We live, because we live in a universe that has, God has created with a moral grain to it, our choices often have a natural cause and effect consequence. This is so important for how we know ourselves, right? But also, um, it's also important for how we teach others. Uh, for instance, parenting. Everyone perks up parenting. It's giving me an application about parenting. Uh, I'm, not the, I'm not the greatest at this, but... My kids will tell you, uh, your, your children, my children, Hope's children, are going to mess up. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, today, maybe this hour, okay? 
they, we, all of us will disobey the voice of God. And so the question is this, when your children are younger and under your roof, or maybe they're just in your temporary care and they're someone else's children, will you have the courage to let those children feel the force of the consequences of obeying and disobeying? Look, I'm not talking about teaching them a lesson, okay? That's not what I'm talking about, just to be clear. I'm talking about letting children be cold when they refuse to wear a coat. I'm talking about letting a child pay for something when they break it in a prank or on purpose. And I'm talking about letting them have more and more freedom as they show you that they use freedom well. And not only does this teach them moral responsibility, that their choices, that their choices have consequences to them, it also makes them a lot less anxious. Here's the deal. I was a college minister for 10 years, full-time, and I can't tell you the number of students I had that were so terrified of failing, just absolutely petrified of failing. And do you know why? A lot of the reason why was because they'd never, their parents had never allowed them to fail. And so they thought, when I fail, it's game over for my life. But don't forget my second word that I want to stir in. I stir in one other word. So we talked about wisdom. I also want to stir in grace. There is another force at work that runs through our universe. And this is what this force says. You're not responsible for everything good or bad that happens to you. <laughs> this is grace. You're not responsible for everything good and bad that happens to you. You're in my lives are not the sum of the consequences of all of our moral choices. And all God's people said, thank God. Thank God. <laughs> what a relief. Let's be clear. God is way beyond us. And his love for his people has never, ever been measured by our moral performance. Listen to the way that writer David Zoll puts it. The gospel message is you can't and you haven't but God can, and he has. The gospel is not if, then. It's because and therefore. Because God became a man who lived a moral life that we could never live and gave his perfect performance to us on the cross, because the judge of everything was judged for us, the gospel is God's glorious yes and amen in Christ. Christians worship and obey a maker who was unmade for us so that Jesus can remake you and me and this whole world in his image. And therefore, he can see the worst things about us and he will not turn his face away. And he will love us all the more. He can, therefore, we can change precisely because we don't have to change to keep the relationship. And so in the words of one theologian, the plagues say at least this about who God is. God's sovereignty cannot be tamed. He can't be contained in a math formula or a grocery list. We are dealing with the God of boundless depth who has creation at his fingertips. I have a friend named Phil, and Phil has 
thought about who God is and how we relate to God and what that means for our lives more than anyone else I've ever met. And Phil was walking down a beach one day in North Carolina and kind of minding his own business, kind of up in his head, uh, trying to enjoy the sights, but can't not being able to leave his life behind that he had left behind to be on a beach. And all of a sudden, he looks up and he locks eyes with a second grade boy with Down syndrome. And the boy looked at Phil with this incredible familiarity and affection. And then he gives Phil this beaming, bursting smile. And he wildly screams with glee. And he starts windmilling his arms. And he starts running at Phil. And Phil is feeling total panic at this moment. He's like, I don't know this boy. I don't, I'm in a public beach. What's going to happen? And all of a sudden, he's kind of just totally surging with panic. This, this child is wrapping his arms around Phil, and he's squeezing him tight, and he thinks, he's never going to let me go. And then, to, even more, the boy starts wildly kissing Phil on the lips. Days afterwards, weeks afterwards, Phil can't shake this event, this encounter, and then it kind of clicks for him all of a sudden. He starts to think about that moment on the beach was a picture. It was a picture of the awkward, sometimes panic-inducing love of God. The look of incredible familiarity and affection. The beaming, bursting smile. The wild scream of glee. The windmilling arms folding into an overly long, never feeling like it's going to stop hug. The sloppy wet kiss right on the lips. The way it happens right when we're just assuming caught up in something else and somewhere else. The feeling of wild and reckless love from someone who feels at once intimate and a stranger. This is the so what of God's shocking power on display in the plagues. This is what God does with all of his sovereignty and boundless depths. This is who God is. He comes at us when we least expect him to, at a run, with panic-inducing abandon. And then, the long-lasting affection of someone who at the same time feels so intimate and familiar, but at the very same time, a complete stranger wild and reckless, with a screaming smile. Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for these words to us this morning. Um, Thanks for giving us these pictures that we get to see. Um, And they're hard and they're disturbing. Um, But I wonder if they're disturbing in the ways that we think they are. And I pray that you would be with us as we carry these images with us and be, us, be with us as we think about who you are and feel our way around and through who you are. Um, Lord, and would, you, would the meditations of our hearts and the words of our lips be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and redeemer. Amen.